All right, good evening, everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 4? Now, as we come to chapter 4, we come to the final section of the book of Revelation, according to the outline of the book which Jesus himself gave to us in chapter 1, verse 19. In chapter 1, verse 19, the Lord Jesus said to John, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So the book of Revelation falls into three main categories. First of all, write the things which you have seen. Well, that would have been the vision that John saw of Jesus in chapter 1. And the things which are, well, that would be the things of the church since chapters 2 and 3 were seven letters written to seven churches in Asia Minor, but spiritually they represent all churches throughout all of the church age. So write the things which are, in fact, we are still in that period. We are still in the church age. John was writing in the church age 2,000 years ago. We're still in it, so write the things which are. And then finally... And write the things which will take place after this. Now, I'm going to share this with you. It's important to remember this. The after this is the Greek phrase metatauta. Metatauta. And really is after these things. Now, that phrase becomes very important. We'll talk about it more in just a moment. But uh, when, when the Lord Jesus says to John, and then finally write the things which will take place Metatauta, after these things. After what things? After the things of chapters 2 and 3, which deal with the church, or after the church age comes to a close. The Bible teaches that the church age started on Pentecost, Acts 2, and will end at the rapture whenever that will occur. We don't know, of course. I believe that... When it talks about, you know, the Bible teaches the church they started on Pentecost and will end uh, at the rapture, I believe that's what's in view in chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read it. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. And I will show you things which must take place after this, meta tauta, after these things. Again, guys, verse 1 of chapter 4 opens and closes with the Greek phrase meta tauta. And when it says after these things, it's a, a, a clear line of, of demarcation. The Holy Spirit is, is closing out one thing and starting something new. It's just not a random thing, you know, right after this. What comes after this? No, no, that's a, that's a technical phrase uh, in the Greek signifying the close of one thing and the beginning of another. So verse 1 of chapter 4 opens and closes with the Greek phrase metatauta, after these things, which, listen now, connects chapter 4 verse 1 with chapter 1 verse 19 and tells us that we have entered into the final section of the book which covers chapters 4 through 22. Now listen to me carefully, okay? Since chapter 4 can't begin until after the church age closes, right? Write these things you know, after this. So after the close of chapters 2 and 3, after the close of the church age, then chapter 4 can begin. So since chapter 4 can't begin until after the church age closes, and the church age doesn't officially close until the rapture, can we see evidence of the rapture of the church somewhere after the close of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4? And I believe the answer is yes, absolutely. Now, I was reading some commentators that I respect uh, today, and uh, you know they don't agree with this. Uh, I'm sure there are many good teachers that don't agree uh, with this. I personally believe that as we read in chapter 4, verse 1, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. See, I believe the rapture's in view here. All right, I'm going to show you why. All right, but first of all, in verse one we read, John said, "After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven." Now, this takes us back to something Jesus promised 
the true and faithful church of Philadelphia. Turn back to chapter 3. Let's look at verse 8 and then verse 10. He gave them a very special promise that we studied a few weeks ago, where Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia, and I believe the church of Philadelphia is symbolic, it was a real church, understand that, but I believe it's symbolic of the evangelical church of these last days. I know your works, Jesus said. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. The living translates from the great tribulation or the hour of tribulation which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Jesus promised his true last day's church, again represented by the church of Philadelphia, the evangelical church, that he would keep her from, the Greek could be translated, deliver her out of the judgment that was coming upon the whole world. Well, that would be the tribulation period. That is coming upon the whole world to test, uh, try, the Greek can be translated, those who dwell on the earth. There's that phrase, those that dwell on the earth are the earth dwellers. Very technical phrase that is speaking directly to militant unbelievers who are never going to get saved. Their hearts, they've hardened their hearts way too much. Uh, they don't want to hear it. They have no desire for Jesus Christ or to hear the gospel so most of the judgments of the tribulation period are targeted at these people, all right? Now, certainly, a lot of unbelievers during the tribulation period are going to get saved, all right? But there are those called the earth dwellers who will never get saved. Their hearts are way too hard, okay? They've hardened beyond the point of no return, okay? So, uh, guys, I believe this open door is the door of deliverance. We studied this, we studied chapter uh, verses 8 through 10. I believe this open door we see in uh, Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 is a door of deliverance. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah that I believe could be speaking of the rapture. Why don't you turn to it, Isaiah 26. And let's pick it up in verse 19. Where God said, your dead shall live. Interesting. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. And now I'm realizing it's Isaiah that's speaking. Obviously not the Lord. He doesn't die, right? But your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs. And the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And you can read the rest of the passage. And then in John's gospel, in the upper room, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus promised his disciples, not just in that room, but all of his disciples throughout the church age, he said in John 14, verses 2 and 3, in my father's house are many mansions. The Greek is dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. I believe that is the rapture in view there that where I am, there you may be also. So first of all, guys, John sees a door, a door standing open in heaven, which again, I believe is a door of deliverance to evacuate his church off of the earth as he promised in Revelation 3, verses 8 and 10, before his divine judgments are poured out on this fallen world. Secondly, John says, and the first voice which I heard 
was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here. Now, maybe I'm a little crazy. That sounds like rapture talk to me. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians 4, let's pick it up in verse 16, where Paul is talking about the rapture. He said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, listen, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. The Greek word is harpazo, and it means to be suddenly snatched away but the Latin Vulgate, the word is rapturo, which is where we get our word rapture from. So when people tell you the word rapture is not in the Bible, you can say to them, not in our English Bible. It does appear in the Latin Vulgate, and that's where we get the word rapture from. So let me paraphrase. Then we who are alive and remain shall be raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Well, that's the first classic New Testament passage on the rapture. The second one comes out of 1 Corinthians 15, if you would turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, let's pick it up in verse 51, although you can read the whole chapter on your own, you'll enjoy it, it's really great, all right? Where Paul said, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. When Jesus Christ comes for his church at the rapture, many Christians will be alive. We're, we're all rooting for us to be alive, right? Many will have died, of course, over the 2,000 year church age. Many will be in the grave. But when the Lord descends, uh, 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 when the Lord comes for his church in the rapture, Paul said, we, We're not going to all be sleeping in the grave. We're not going to all have died, but we're all going to be changed. We're all going to go through this instant metamorphosis where we get our glorified bodies. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all, is the idea, we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This body is of the earth. It's going to die and return back to the dust of the earth if the rapture doesn't happen before I die. But this body is not made for heaven. It's going to be instantly transformed when the Lord comes for his church. This mortal will put on immorality. This corruption will put on incorruption, right? And um, it's all speaking of the rapture. Now, there's a lot of Christians who, uh, I don't know if they don't believe in the rapture at all. Many don't anymore. Um, but they believe the language here in First uh, Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 is speaking of the second coming not the rapture. They, they write these passages off as speaking of Jesus' second coming. Here's why that's not correct, okay? At Jesus, at the rapture, Jesus comes for his church, right? And he comes in the clouds. He doesn't even come to earth. We are instantly taken up and meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds, right? And then he takes us to heaven. So he comes for his church at the rapture. He doesn't even come back to the earth at that time. At the second coming, he comes with his church, Revelation 19, all the way to the earth to set up his kingdom. Two entirely different events. All right? I know you know that. Now look, the church has been mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of this book. And now suddenly, she disappears from the earth. She disappears, and we will not see her again until... We see her as the bride of Christ in chapter 19, returning with the Lord Jesus, her bridegroom, to the earth to establish his kingdom. I love what J. Vernon McGee said with regard to this. Let me read it to you. He said, and I quote, From here on you will not find the word church mentioned. But now the church goes off the air. There is no mention of it. It has gone off the air because it went up in the air. It was caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. The church has gone to heaven. That is what has happened to it. 
when the church arrives at its destination in heaven, it loses the name by which it was known in the world, and other terms are used to describe it. She is no longer a church. She is a bride, a bride adorned for her husband. The apostate organization, which bears the ecclesiastical terminology and continues on in the world. In other words, after the rapture happens, the true church is gone. They're taken to heaven, right, all of us. What's left on the earth is the apostate, false Christian church. They're going to still be here, all right? And he goes on to say that hereafter, uh, they don't even bear the, the title of church either after the rapture. But the frightful label of the harlot, the harlot. The late Dr. George Gill said years ago in a seminary class, there are going to be some churches which will meet the next Sunday after the rapture and they won't be missing a single member. How sad is that? It's true though. They will be, they will all be there. McGee said, why? Because they are churches of Laodicea. They have the name Christian church, but they are not connected to Jesus he is not in their church. As we said, we studied Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea. He was knocking on the door of their church, on the door of their hearts, really, to be let in. All right? So these churches will be completely full the Sunday after the rapture because they are Laodicean churches. That is, they profess to be Christian but lack the reality of knowing Jesus Christ in truth. So guys, after the church is removed from the earth at the rapture, the scene now shifts to heaven in Revelation chapter 4, where the church, once seated with Christ in heavenly places spiritually, Ephesians 2, 6, is now seen safely seated with Christ in heaven, literally, before the judgment of God is poured out upon this Christ-rejecting world. That's very important. Where is the church before chapter 6 opens up and the judgments are poured out, she's in heaven. She is in heaven with the Lord Jesus. As he promised, he would not leave his true church on the earth to go through the judgments being poured out because we have accepted Christ. There's no reason for us to be punished with the wicked. And in fact, Peter tells us God would never allow that. So he evacuates his church off the earth before his judgment comes. We are seated safely with Christ literally at that point in heaven before the first seal is ever broken and the first judgment ever released. Guys, in the book of Revelation, there are recorded numerous judgments of God which he releases on the inhabitants of the earth during the tribulation period. They are in this order, the seven seal judgments followed by the seven trumpet judgments and finally, by the seven bowl judgments. All of these judgments are called the wrath of God. All of them. All of these judgments are called the wrath of God, which he pours out on the earth dwellers primarily, which is what we've already said. These earth dwellers are absolute militant Christ rejectors who are never going to get saved. And yet, with regard to the body of Christ, the true people of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And be careful, I do not believe that Paul, when he said that God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation, I, I don't believe he's talking about salvation from hell. He's talking about Jesus saving us from the wrath to come. When he says, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, I believe he's got the rapture in view. The Lord Jesus coming to evacuate his church off of the earth to save us from the wrath that is coming. Now look again, the first seal, chapter 6, the Lord Jesus breaks the first seal. So that's, this is the first judgment of God during the tribulation period. And, and we're going to study this, but... The first judgment unleashed on the earth, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, is the coming of the Antichrist. The coming of the Antichrist. Listen. 
if the Antichrist is the first judgment of God during the tribulation period, and God has not appointed his church to any judgment or wrath that he is going to pour out in this world, then the church won't see the Antichrist rise to power. For me, that settles it. That settles the issue. Will the church see the Antichrist? Will we go in partly into the tribulation period and then get raptured midpoint, pre-trib, or what? Post-trib. I believe that Revelation is teaching us that if the Antichrist is the first judgment of God in the tribulation period, and we have not appoint, been appointed by God to see any judgments of God on the, on the world during this time, the rapture has to happen before the Antichrist is revealed. And I believe it will. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe the Antichrist is alive on planet Earth right now. But the church, saints, true, true Christians, belonging to the body of Christ, won't see him rise to power as the leader of the one world government. In other words, he won't be revealed nor come to power until after the church has been removed from the earth. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. Very important scripture on this subject. 2 Thessalonians 2. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Paul said, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Who is the restrainer? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. But don't misunderstand. It's the Holy Spirit working in the church. We are the conscience of the world. We are what is, through the power of the Spirit in us, the church, we are being used to restrain evil. When the rapture happens and the Holy Spirit working through the church is removed, the church is in heaven, that will uh, allow now the devil to have full reign. You think things are bad now? With the church and the world restraining through the power of the Holy Spirit that things could get much worse, the church is being used to restrain that? Can you imagine what it's going to look like when the church is taken, now the Holy Spirit won't be gone from the earth at this time. He's going to be working very hard to bring people to Christ during the tribulation period. Check out chapter 7. Uh, so many get saved and martyred by the Antichrist, John can't even number the number. It's so large. So praise God, the Holy Spirit's going to be at work during the tribulation period saving people. Okay, But I believe what Paul is saying is he's talking about the restrainer, the Holy Spirit working through the church, when the restrainer, the Holy Spirit in the church is taken away, verse 8, then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So the church has got to be out of here before the Antichrist could be revealed and rise to power. And so I just believe that this is what the scriptures are teaching, that the Antichrist, you know, will not, I, th I believe he's alive right now, but he will not come into power. Um, he will not be embraced by the world as their leader. He will not be used to bring about the one world government before the church is evacuated out of here at the time of the rapture. And I believe this is what Revelation 4 verse 1 is teaching. And so once again, the church has been mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation. But then is raptured to heaven at the beginning of Revelation chapter 4. And now the scene shifts to heaven. In excuse me, in chapter 4, where the church is now seen safely seated with Christ in heaven before the judgment of God is poured out again on this Christ-rejecting world. So again, Revelation 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this, after the church age is done. John said, what's the next word? Immediately. You think we can paraphrase and insert in a twinkling of an eye? I don't think that would be doing any damage to the idea, okay? I believe when John says immediately, 
He's talking about the rapture happening so quick, happening so quick, like the twinkle of an eye, right? As Paul described it. Immediately, and John's getting raptured right now. That's what I'm, I'm talking about, right? Immediately, I was in the spirit. John's a part of the church. Of course, he's going to get raptured with the church, right? Immediately, in a twinkle of an eye, I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Let me stop there. John was taken in the spirit to heaven, which means he is now in the realm of the spirit. This allowed John to see future events. Understand, this was not a vision. This was not a vision, but a balcony seat in heaven from which to watch these events as they were actually, actually, literally unfolding before his eyes. John has now got a balcony seat, and through John's eyes and the things he recorded, we now have a balcony seat to see what John sees, okay? And remember from our study in chapter 1 that John tells us in verse 10 that all of the events he records in the book of Revelation happened in a single day, the Lord's Day, Sunday. Again, some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, how could all of the events that John sees that make up the book of Revelation, including the seven-year tribulation period, the thousand-year millennial kingdom, and even the start of the eternal state, all happen in one day, Sunday, the Lord's Day. How could that be? It's because in the realm of the Spirit, time is not a factor. As we have said, time is a physical dimension, a part of our four-dimensional physical universe. And therefore, when God took John out of the physical universe into the realm of the spirit, well, he took him outside the limits of time. This allowed John to see all of the events he recorded in this book happening as though they were happening all at once. Like looking at a parade from a helicopter. Remember we talked about that? We who are subject to time. We see events pass by us in time, okay? Like we would watch a parade from ground level. We only see what's in front of us, you know? And as things come by us, we understand what's going on and so on. But if you could, go in, uh, it could jump into a helicopter and fly high enough above that parade and look down, you would see the beginning, the middle, and the end all at the same time. That's kind of what we're talking about and what John is seeing, all right? Uh, I believe if the Lord allowed John, John could see the Garden of Eden. He could see the day in which we're living, and he can see every event that he described in the book of Revelation all at the same time. He's outside of time, which means he can see all of time in front of him. The Lord has him focus on only that time, which is going to affect the whole world, the tribulation period, and then beyond, all right, primarily. But uh, this is where John is seated now. Now, I, I don't think it's possible for us, and I said this when we studied chapter 1, I don't think it's possible for us to know exactly what John experienced on the Isle of Patmos that Sunday and exactly what mechanism God used to transport him into the future. But it happened. And God used it to give John and all of us who read this book a balcony seat to the events that in a very short period of time are going to take place on the earth in real time. It's good to be prepared, you know. I don't believe we're going to see the tribulation period, but we're going to see a lot of stuff that's going to lead up to the tribulation period. We're seeing it now. It's good to be prepared, okay? The key word, guys, in Revelation chapter 4 is the word throne which is used 14 times. In fact, this is a key word that is used throughout the entire book of Revelation, appearing 46 times throughout the book. Why would God make it a point to talk about his throne so much throughout this book? Think about that. 46 times God uses the word throne, his throne. Why would he talk about his throne so much? in the course of John writing this book. I believe it was because there is coming upon this earth such horrendous things 
such cataclysmic judgments and events that if God didn't keep reminding us, and I'm thinking primarily reminding the tribulation saints that will be living through these things in the future, right? I mean, during the tribulation period, the Spirit's going to be at work. A lot of folks are going to get saved. A lot of them are going to be able to, you know, find Bibles. And you, you, what's the first book you think they're going to turn to and want to study? The book of Revelation, right? Which is show, you know, showcasing all these horrific judgments, cataclysmic upheavals. And yet sprinkled throughout the book, God's throne, God's throne, God's throne. God is mentioned on his throne. Why is that? Because God wanted to keep reminding them and us throughout the book that he was on the throne, on the throne. God's people, if he didn't remind us even now, but especially them at that time, that he was on the throne during all these incredible, horrendous judgments, they might be prone to lose all hope. They might be prone to lose all hope. Look, this is a lesson we must remember right now. When we face horrendous adversities, like a Joe Biden presidency, perhaps, if you wake up November 4th, which I don't think the election will be decided by them, but hypothetically, if you wake up on November 4th and Joe Biden is now the new president, is God still on the throne? Okay. Is your relationship with Jesus Christ any different? No. Are the promises that God gave to you before Joe Biden became president, are they null and void now? No, of course not. We better remember that. Okay? We, we, we better remember that. God is still on the throne. Otherwise, I think many Christians will start to lose all hope for the future, think everything is it's, we're, it's done. All hope is gone. No, it isn't. Our hope is in Christ. He's coming for his church. That hasn't changed. So we, we have to remember God is on the throne. It's the Holy Spirit's way of telling us no matter what may happen on earth, God is still on the throne and in complete control. Uh, please notice that John makes it a point <clears throat> to say that he saw one that sat on the throne. Verse 2. This is, of course, God the Father. Since God the Son approaches the throne in Revelation 5, verse 6, as a lamb that had been slain, and the Spirit is pictured before the throne in Revelation 4, verse 5. So this is the throne of God the Father, the only one on this throne, God the King. Notice, will you? And I'm not being facetious, sarcastic. I'm being deadly serious. Notice, if you will, there is no queen. There is no queen. And by that I mean Mary isn't seen here sitting on God's throne or on any throne. Now she's there because she's part of the church and she was raptured with John and all of us. I'm not suggesting Mary is not in heaven at this point. She is. You just, as John sees a vision of the throne of God, God the Father, we know Jesus approaches the throne in chapter 5. The Spirit is pictured around the throne, chapter 4. This is God the Father's throne, the king of the universe. We see the king on his throne. We don't see a queen anywhere. And I bring that up because in Roman Catholic theology, and we've talked about this, they teach that Mary at one point never died. She was uh, assumed up into heaven. Every year the Catholic Church celebrates the Assumption of Mary, where she never died. And I told you about the family Bible we had, had, we had in our family as I was growing up. And they had beautiful paintings, pictures in this Bible of main events. You know, the Garden of Eden, uh, the fall of man, Noah's Ark, you know, that kind of... Jesus, you know, on the Mount of... Uh, on the uh, teaching uh, on the, um, for the Sermon on the Mount, right up in the Galilee... In the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, all the, the, on the cross. And then if you keep flipping, you see one picture where Mary is just rising up into heaven, and the next picture, the Lord is putting a crown on her head, crowning her the Queen of Heaven. This was a Catholic Bible. 
I don't know if I mentioned that, okay? This was, our family was raised in the Catholic Church. This was a Catholic Bible. And as a kid, I just read it and believed it was true. Of course, when I became a born-again Christian and started studying the Bible in truth, I realized that as wonderful a person as Mary is, let's be careful we evangelicals don't put Mary down because we're reacting against what the Catholic Church has done to her. Mary was one of the most beautiful, precious young women of God that has ever lived, I'm convinced. She loved God with all her heart. And when God said to her, I have chosen that you be the mother of Messiah, and you're not going to bear this child through any physical contact with a man. I'm going to impregnate your womb with the seed of God, and nine months later, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. And what did she say? Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be done to me as you have spoken. Mary is a precious woman, a precious saint. But if she knows what the Catholic Church has done to her, I'm not sure she does, but let's just say she does know what they've done to her, how they have venerated her and made her an object of worship. I'm sure she's heartbroken. I'm sure she's heartbroken. The last time we see Mary is in the book of Acts chapter 1. She's in the upper room with the disciples, and she is praying with them. They are praying with her. They're not praying to her. They're praying with her. And then she's gone out of the pages of Scripture. And, of course, we will see her at the rapture. But just so you know, in Roman Catholic theology, which comes from Babylonianism, as we have talked about, they worship the Queen of Heaven. Every major culture on the face of the planet has worshipped the Queen of Heaven in some form or another. We've talked about the different places in the world and what the names they have given to Mary and the, to the Queen of Heaven and the child that she bore. You know, and, 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 and the latest iteration is Roman Catholic teaching that uh, the Queen of Heaven is Mary and the babe is Jesus uh, and so on. And... Um, and we see halos around her head, around the baby Jesus, uh, because they are super holy. Well, uh, that comes out of Babylonianism, too, because uh, in Babylonianism, Semiramis, the queen of heaven, gave birth to Tammuz, who was the sun god. That halo is a, a sun, not a halo like we were taught, just symbolizing something that's very holy. It, it comes all out of Babylonian occultism. And that's why when the whole system gets judged in Revelation 17, it's called Babylon, Mystery Babylon, mother of all harlots on the face of the earth. All false religious systems. We'll get there. We'll get there eventually, unless Jesus comes, and I'll let him finish the study. So we see God the king, but no queen of heaven. Revelation 4, verse 2. Again, John said, immediately, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Please understand something, okay? When you read this, understand that when you read this, you're trying to see heaven through the eyes of a first century man, okay? Uh, now us, who have been given the benefit of Star Wars and other movies like that, uh, and all the special effects that we have come to take for granted in the movies, if we had been there, maybe we could have done a better job relating what John saw. I don't know, probably we could have. So be patient with John. He's trying his best in a primitive way to describe things that go, listen, beyond his ability to comprehend and communicate. In particular, what he's seeing right here in Revelation 4 and 5 with regard to his vision of heaven itself. Now look, later on, we're going to see him in this book trying to describe 21st century weaponry uh, using primitive 1st century language. That's going to be fun, okay? I mean, you're a 1st century guy. You see a tank. How would you describe it? 
You see an Apache helicopter. What would you say? I mean, think about it for a second, right? I mean, I think some of the stuff he describes are demonic. And some of the things, ways he describes them, it's not of the earth. But I think there's a lot of things that John describes as best he can. He doesn't have any frame of reference. He doesn't have the vocabulary to be able to describe this. He doesn't know what it is. So let's be patient. We'll look at those when we get there, all right? But I want you to notice that in describing God sitting on his throne, John sees no form. Now, that's important. John sees no form, only brilliant, multicolored lights, which he likens the precious stones. Again, please note that John didn't say that God was made of precious stones. He said in verse 3 that God was like, was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. I believe that John is trying to describe God, the God of light, in a primitive way using the imagery of various colored gemstones. It's all he can do. That's the best he can, he, can, he can do to come up with something that will kind of, you know, relate to what he's seeing. You remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. That God, who we know is a spirit, John 4, right? That God is spirit, Jesus said in John 4, and therefore has no form. But Paul said that God dwells in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6.16 This is what John is seeing. A throne with no form on it, but incredibly brilliant multicolored lights. You know, we think of a laser light show. I'm talking about one of these really big, really uh, sophisticated, high-end Laser light shows, right? That can't even begin to describe, I believe, what John is seeing there in heaven coming, the light coming from this throne, right? Just God is just bursting forth. The Shekinah glory in all these multicolored lights. John is like, you know, he's, he's trying to describe it using his first century language. Well, it looks like uh, different colored gemstones and so on, Right? Now, guys, the fact that God is spirit and has no form was something he incorporated, listen, into the Ten Commandments when he forbid his people from making an image of him to worship. Turn to Exodus 20. This was very important to God. We're going to see why in just a moment. Very important to God. So important he put it into the Ten Commandments. Let's just read Exodus 20, verses 4, and the beginning of verse 5, where God said, You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness, of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. Any of these carved images, what he's saying, that you make to represent me, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The question is, why is God so adamant about us not making anything to represent him when we worship him? Why? Because God is an omnipresent spirit. He is without form as we know it and is not confined to any one place at any given moment in time. I mean, since God is omnipresent, his presence is everywhere, and not just at any given moment, but he also fills eternity with his presence, what are you going to make to represent that kind of a God? Think about it. What are you going to make to truthfully represent that God? Turn to Isaiah 40.
And this gets at the heart of why God forbid them making an image of him from anything that they would then use to bow down and worship him. Let's read Isaiah 40, verses 18 through 22, and verses 25 and 6. I'm going to read it to you out of the NLT, second edition. Isaiah 40, verse 18, God said, To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? Can he be compared to an idol formed in a mold, overlaid with gold and decorated with silver chains? Or if people are too poor for that, they might at least choose wood that won't decay and a skilled craftsman to carve an image that won't fall down. Haven't you heard? Do you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God, the words he gave before the world began? Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. Verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Can you imagine that? God has a name for every star in the universe? Yikes. That's a big God. That's a big God, all right? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. You can read that whole passage on your own. But the idea is, God is saying, look, I am an infinite God. I am omnipresent. I am all-powerful. What are you going to make to represent me? What? And whatever you do, God is saying, look, if you try to reduce me to an object, if you turn me into something that can be seen and touched, well, you make a representation of me that is infinitely less than what I really am. Think about that infinitely less than what I really am and is therefore a false representation of me and therefore you're bowing down and worshiping a false god when you use it to worship me. Again, guys, God is an omnipresent spirit and no statue, picture, or anything else can even begin to properly represent him. Turn to Psalm 139. Listen to what David said. I'm sure most of you know this psalm. Psalm 139, starting with verse 7. David asks, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you're your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. To reduce God to anything which you then pray to or worship is to bow down before a false God. And God condemns it in the strongest possible way. Speaking later of Israel's experience at Sinai, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 4 verse 12, And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, you heard the sounds of the words, listen, you heard the sounds of God's voice. You heard the sounds of his words, but saw, listen, no form. You only heard a voice. That was deliberate. God could have taken a form. He's God. He purposely showed them no form. Only spoke words to them. And guys, this established the principle that the worship of God was to be, listen, word-based, not image-based. We've alluded to it. Let me read to you John 4, verses 23 and 4, which you know. Jesus said, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. They must worship God 
in spirit by being born of the Spirit. Nobody can properly worship God who is not born again, who is not a genuine child of God, right? Uh, John 3, we have to be born of the Spirit, born again. That's how you, first of all, worship God in spirit. What about the truth part? You get that from His Word, not images. His Word tells us, very specifically, by the way, how God is to be worshipped. He gave very explicit instructions. David did not understand those instructions. And when he went to get the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Edom, he didn't do it God's way. He didn't have the Ark set on a couple of poles resting on the shoulders of the Kohathites, a family of the Levites who were oppressed by God to be the ones to transport the Ark. No, he followed the Philistine example, put the Ark on a new cart, uh, you know, and, and rolled it along. Uh, with a couple of oxen until it hit a rut and the ark looked like it was going to tumble off into the dirt and Uzzah reaches up and grabs it and God strikes him because God was saying, when I say something as important as to how you approach me, you better follow that to the letter. If you don't, it's your death. And of course, the bigger picture was any who try to approach God through religion, ultimately with the hope of getting to heaven, but don't do it God's way, don't receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, but try to climb up into heaven some other way, like a thief and robber, John 10, Jesus said. They're going to die. You can't approach God on your terms. You can't climb up into heaven through good works. God is very specific. That's the gospel, right, folks? That's all the way through, even as far back as Genesis 3.15. The first glimpse of the gospel that through the seed of the woman, God would send a redeemer. Women don't have seed. The men have seed. That, that's biologically incorrect. Stop talking about the virgin birth. But you might say God's a stickler when he says things, especially things this important, right? Look, the people that think of God in terms of the statue on their dresser or the medal around their neck, or the picture on their wall, listen, do not understand the divine majesty of God. I'm not questioning their motive. Many of them have sincere hearts. But we have to challenge their methods. And a lot of that I blame on their churches. But they're a part of those churches of their own free will. They can get a copy of the Bible and read it on their own. There's no excuse. For not knowing what God has said with regard to the way you worship him. And so these folks that look to statues and medals and pictures to represent God to them don't understand the divine majesty of God, that he is an infinite spirit, infinite spirit, and his presence fills the universe in all of eternity itself. Paul denounced the unsaved religious people of this world for doing this very thing in Romans chapter 1. Turn there quickly. Paul denounces this very thing. There's a lot of religious people in the world that are not Christians. And they all have their little way of approaching God and what they think constitutes God. And Paul denounced them. Romans 1 verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image. There's that word again. The very thing God forbid. Change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Paul said they made the colossal error of rejecting the worship of the Creator in favor of worshiping the creation. We are there today. We are living in a world that is obsessed with the creation. Whether you're talking about radical environmentalism or the worship of Gaia, Mother Earth, or whatever. It takes many different forms. You have people that have turned the earth into an idol. And you know what God does with idols? He destroys them. This is what is going to be in view throughout the book of Revelation. God is pouring his judgment out upon the wicked, but ultimately he's destroying the idol named earth. At one point he brings an earthquake so powerful the earth 
literally cracks open. And that's okay because God's going to destroy it anyways and recreate the earth, the universe, and give to us a brand new city called New Jerusalem to live in forever. Look, you know, we're, we're done. Let me just say this. To accommodate the use of statues, idols, in their churches and worship services, the Roman Catholic Church couldn't let this commandment, the second commandment found Exodus 20, verses 4, beginning of verse 5, they couldn't let the second commandment stay. You know, it says, don't make an idol. Don't bow down to statues and all these things. Well, go to any Catholic church. They're loaded with them. So what do you do? You got to get rid of this commandment. And so they took the whole second commandment out of the Catholic Bible. Now, some of the more recent Catholic Bible, it's been added back in. They got a lot of heat for this. I've got copies where it's gone. Okay? They took, at one point the whole second commandment out of the Catholic Bible, but then to keep the Ten Commandments the Ten Commandments and not the Nine Commandments, they took the Tenth Commandment and broke it into two parts. They got a lot of heat for this. And so I think in some of the newer versions, they have put it back the way it was. Look, in closing, some have said that the second commandment doesn't forbid the making of an image of God or Jesus for, the, for artistic purposes. Uh, da Vinci maintained this. Michelangelo, same thing. Further, they say that God isn't forbidding us from having pictures of Jesus in our homes or a statue of Jesus on our dresser. Why? Well, as long as we don't use these images in our worship of God, it's okay. Look, I'll let you come to your own conclusion. With regard to that, uh, I'll let you come to your own conclusion with regard to that based on your own conviction. Let me just say this to you. I personally have never had a picture of Jesus in our home. Cindy and I have never used any object, not a statue, picture, or anything else to represent God in our home or in our worship of him. When people use those things to help them feel they are in the presence of God, they have actually lost the awareness of God's presence in their lives, not captured it. Again, read Psalm 139. Whenever a person has to have an object to help them connect with God, they are at least in a backslidden, diminished, or stunted, stunted spiritual state or at worst, they are still in darkness and have not been born again of the Spirit. Because when you are walking in the Spirit, when you are saved, Spirit-filled, a saved, Spirit-filled person, you are never going to look to any object to represent God to you. You know why? Because God is filling you. He's overflowing you. You're conscious of the conscious of the reality is everywhere you go. You 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 can never go anywhere where you where you escape his presence. In fact, he lives inside of us. We become living holy of holies. Everywhere we go, we're we're standing on holy ground because God is right there inside of us. Truly saved, spirit-filled people understand this. When I see people that can't worship God unless they go to their cathedral. Because that's where God lives. Why do you say that? Well, his statue's there. I feel sorry for him. I don't mock them. I don't make fun out of them. I weep for them. Because they don't understand. They obviously don't have a true, genuine relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Look, God wants, and I'm talking to those listening or watching on live stream, primarily, God wants you to have a true, a vibrant, a living spiritual relationship with him, which can only begin the moment you give your heart to Jesus Christ and make him your Lord, your Savior. That's when it starts. That's when the connection is made. That's when you and God become one and the Holy Spirit comes to live in your heart. That's where it starts. That's not where it ends. The just shall, what? Live by faith. Yeah, we get saved by faith. That's not where it ends. 
That's the starting point. Then every day after, we live by faith. And where does faith come from? The Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Here we are back to those words again. Images, no. You want to know God? You get into the Word. He has revealed Himself through the pages of Scripture. The Word of God teaches us what is acceptable to God in the way of worship, what is unacceptable. The Word of God teaches us what God the Spirit desires from us in the way of worship. And He wants us to worship Him in spirit. You've got to be born again. And in truth, got to be faithful to God's Word. Anything else, God rejects. There is acceptable worship, and then there is unacceptable worship. I know it doesn't sound very tolerant, but it's true, right? Remember John 4 to the woman by the well of, uh, uh, in Samaria? Where do I worship when she finds out he's a prophet? He doesn't, she doesn't know at that point who he really is, but right now, he, the light's coming on. And at very least, she knows he's a prophet, a man of God, because he just told her, you know, she'd been married five times and was not living with a guy. How would he know that unless he's a prophet of God? Okay, well, that's a good first step. First thing she asked then is, where do I worship God? I think there's a lot of people, if you cut past, get past and cut through all the sin, all the grasping to find happiness, and many try to find it through human relationships, others through money, others through all kinds of junk. But the first time she realized she was in the presence of a prophet, a genuine man of God, what was the first thing she asked Jesus? Where can I find God? Where does God hang out? My people say on Mount Gerizim is the place to worship God. You Jews say Mount Moriah is the place to worship. Where do I go to, to find God? And what did Jesus say to, said, said to her? Woman, you worship what you do not know. We know who we worship for salvation is of the Jews. What did he tell her? You are not worshiping correctly. Oh, I guess not all roads do lead to God. I guess God doesn't account sincerity for righteousness. doesn't matter who you worship, uh, what religion you believe in, as long as you're sincere. Well, that's not how Jesus felt. And he tells this woman. And look, the, mo the kindest, most loving thing you can do for a person is tell them the truth. Oh, but they're going to get their feelings hurt. Oh, that's more important than they suffer for eternity in hell, I guess, that you don't hurt their feelings. Look, you can give the truth in love, which I encourage you to do. But give the truth. Jesus said, woman, I'll paraphrase. Woman, I, I know you're sincerely trying to find God. You won't find it on Mount Gerizim. That's a false system of worship. Your people don't know what they worship or who. Well, yeah, Jerusalem, that's the place, Mount Moriah, where God prescribed that he would be worshipped. That's true, under the old covenant. But I'm here to begin a new covenant. And this covenant, God is not worshipped in any locality. He is worshipped continually in your heart. Because in the new covenant, you receive me, God moves into your heart. You become a living holy of holies. Everywhere you go, God goes with. And you worship him your entire day by the way you th think, what you say, how you act, what you, how you live. We need to understand that, right? God has no form. He did take a form in the person of Jesus Christ. But God himself is spirit. Of course, Jesus is God. Don't get me wrong. At one point, God did become a man. But still, the principle remains. God does not want us to reduce him to any image of anything. Then we lose the majesty of who he really is. And God wants us to understand him in truth not in this error that many cling to. Amen? Next week, God willing, we will continue this incredible look at the throne of God in heaven and what John sees and what he describes to us. It is amazing. So come on back next week. Father, we thank you 
for your word. We thank you, Lord, that, well, we thank you that you gave John this incredible, um, I'm going to say vision. We know it was not technically a vision. He saw it in reality. You took him to heaven, and he saw things and described things in heaven and things that were coming upon the earth. We thank you, Lord, that you gave John all this information to share with us. We ask that you keep blessing these studies in your word and give us grace to prepare ourselves uh, for whatever is coming by reminding ourselves you're on the throne and everything is working together according to your will for your ultimate purposes. We thank you, Lord. We take great comfort in knowing that nothing is out of control with regard to you. You are absolutely in control of everything. Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask you to keep blessing these studies. Guide us home safely. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.